Good afternoon. I'm Robin Williams. I started the science show in 1975, and that time the vice chancellor of the University of South Australia was one. And the University of South Australia is, of course, our great host, for which we're immensely grateful. And we're going to talk about going off the grid, or half going off the grid. There is a choice. And uh, just one brief story. A friend of mine called Kylie Hearn is a friend of Mike Mobbs, and they have a house which went off the grid and did all sorts of clever things. And guess who launched that house? It's quite interesting. No. No. Alan Jones. Now, you wonder why someone so much on the right of politics might be interested in doing that. And the answer is, he's against most forms of government and wants you to be absolutely independent as much as possible. And this is where the politics get kind of interesting. So we'll see whether, A, the politics are straightforward, whether permission can be got for people who want to do exciting things, or whether it's all too difficult to bother or let's carry on as we are, a great Australian tradition. So, to discuss some of those things, we have, as you can see, a panel of three very, very clever and informed people. First of all, we have next to me Simon Hackett to give the formal background. Internode founder, a non-executive director of the NBN and an active investor in a number of technological businesses, including the Kent town-based startup Base64. Also chairman of ASX-listed flow battery manufacturer Redflow Limited, a company that's pioneering affordable power storage for homes and businesses globally. Next, Felicity Whiting, a registered architect, leads the Australian Business Division for Cutting Edge Technology and Multidisciplinary Sustainable Infrastructure Company, Infrastrec. Gosh, that's a long sentence, isn't it? <laughs> Infratech Industries, the company responsible for Australia's first floating solar project. She has postgraduate and undergraduate degrees in architecture from the University of Adelaide and has worked on architectural design services in the government engineering procurement sector, residential and luxury resort development for rail infrastructure. And over there, Dan. Dan Spencer is a campaigner with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and has spent the last few years working with the Port Augusta community on the Repower Port Augusta campaign for a just transition from coal to solar thermal. Dan's also worked with young people across the country campaigning to, project, to protect the Great Barrier Reef from coal expansion for renewable energy and climate action and was awarded the inaugural Bob Brown Young Environmentalist of the Year in 2012. Would you welcome our panel? So, Simon, from your point of view, what's possible? Well, thank, thank you, Robin. Yeah, tick, tick, good. Thanks, Robin. Um, before I launch into what's possible, I'm going, to, I'm going to start the process by immediately changing the title of the talk. It's off-grid game changers. From my, from my point of view, we need to take the first word away from that sentence and just talk about the notion of being grid game changers. And that's really what interests me, and indeed, I'd argue, interests all, all of us here on the panel. The thing that's coming at the moment, I'll spend a few minutes talking about it, is, is clearly the addition of battery energy storage to grids that today don't have any of that stuff. 
We're about to see an interesting transformation happen. 15 years ago, if you bought a solar panel, you were, you were an early adopter because they were very expensive things to buy. And so you would be kind of start off on a box somewhere as being a greenie that was playing around in something that will never amount to much. These days, solar panels are something where the volume has gone up, the cost has come down, and now they're a very widespread object, both on our roofs and also in, in, in larger scale power stations, although less so in, in this particular country in the latter case so far. When you add batteries to that situation, you find something interesting goes on. Batteries are where solar panels were 15 years ago. They're expensive, but now at least they work. And over the next 10 or 15 years, early adopters will buy them, help drive the cost down for everyone, and they will become something that's very widely deployed, all the way from in your house, in the midst of the grid, and also paired up with large renewable energy generators. And they really do change everything in this realm, because absent of them, the electricity grid is a rather strange object. It's a big tree structure. Power goes in at the top. We use it at the bottom. And the trouble is, it's use it or lose it. If there's not enough power, we have a brownout. If there's too much power, we're wasting energy. We're burning coal for no good reason for energy people don't want. Soon as you add energy storage to that, everything becomes more flexible. But a little like the invention of the laser beam many years ago, that flexibility today is like a solution for which we're all starting to explore what precisely is the problem. How exactly do we use that to make our world better? But we know it makes our world better. And hence, it's important that early adopters buy batteries now to be a part of that change, to be a part of that movement. And that's, you know, that's a really big shift in this realm. The reason why I wanted to take the word off away from the start of the talk is because this doesn't cause people that buy batteries to have to get mad as hell at their annoying grid companies, get mad as hell and not take it anymore and unplug. That's actually not in your own economic personal interest to do. If you add a battery or two, you gain an awful lot of internal independence in how you manage your energy. But there's still going to be one more day with one more bad bit of weather that means that there isn't quite enough sun to run your solar panels. And the grid is a very good thing to stay connected to. It's cheaper than buying a big nasty diesel gen set for that tough week. That's what you need to do right now. But, but the deep thing, and this is alluding to what our next panelist will get to, is the grids today are places that look like they don't really want you to plug a battery in. If you plug a battery in, they want to take your feed-in tariff away. If they plug the battery in, they want to make your life complicated in various ways. Ignore that, plug it in anyway. Hang on to your energy now. But brace for the really interesting period that's going to happen over the next three to five years where the grid operators will go through a realisation that batteries are not a, a disadvantage here, they're a positive advantage to the grid. Picture a world with 10,000 homes with batteries attached to them across Adelaide. When you add the internet to that, and when you add a few bits of software, a realm that I'm very involved in, you wind up with a distributed, dispatchable, renewable, 24-hour-a-day generator that can be called on and is embedded precisely where the consumers of energy are, in our streets, around our buildings, not way, way away. And so you want to add energy storage to your home and you want to add energy storage to your business in order to be a part of that oncoming change in, I think, three to five years' time, when I think the grid needs to turn into an enterprise and a place where energy is traded actively between us, between all of us, not merely a place where you buy it, but a place where you also sell it. Getting to there from here, though, has its complexities, and I'll let some of the rest of our panellists give you a sense of that. Before you do, uh, one question. There's always the not yet problem. In other words, batteries seem to be OK, but not OK enough. And we know that there are fantastic ones, say, at the University of Sydney, Tom Mashmire working on ones which are made of gel, which you can build into the structure of your home. They can actually be on the roof or the walls or such like. Can you invest in batteries now 
and not be left behind? That's a great question. The answer is you can, but not that particular sort. The thing with battery technology, if you're interested at all in this realm, you will, you will see in the media there's always one new sort of battery coming out every few weeks and someone's figured out on a, on a laboratory desk how to make a great new battery. The experiential reality is the gap between making a scientific discovery in a lab and having a product that's commercially purchasable in the real world is typically 10 to 15 years. It takes that long because commercialising that little idea so it works at large scale, large enough for your house, let alone large enough for the grid, it just takes that long. It's like pharmaceuticals. It takes a long time to get it to a commercially reproducible stage, which is where it needs to be. But you can buy batteries now. Lead-acid batteries have been around for a century. They're the devil we know. They've got a lot of disadvantages, but you can buy them now. Five years ago, I put a lot of lead-acid batteries in my house in the wilds of Kensington Park because I'm really into this stuff. I mean, that's probably obvious, but I actually am. Redflow, the company I'm now the chairman of, makes a thing called a zinc bromine flow battery. Redflow is 15 years old, so guess what? This is the year we are now starting to sell what we think is an incredibly cool battery to pair with renewables from a home all the way up. 15 years from now, there will be more choices. If you're an early adopter, and I somehow feel a number of you in this audience are, buy one now, start a movement, tell your friends, and be completely comfortable with the idea that in five years' time, the choices will be different. And the good news is, like solar panels, it's starting to get cheaper. And if you start that movement, your friends and your colleagues over the next three to five years will have a much more economic journey because you helped them start it. Felicity, we had a discussion yesterday mentioning central, the central building is central, which is covered in green and which is self-sufficient and which has got cables even connecting it under the road to the University of Technology in Sydney. But they're not allowed to put their surplus across the road to the other building. How are you trying to tackle impediments like that from your development and design stance? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, we think innovative thinking needs innovative doing. And uh, we're looking at innovative solutions to put energy storage behind the meter. So controlling um, what gets put into the transmission and distribution lines, putting in microgrids, and then partnering with neighbours, partnering with um, community players, um, industry to actually create um, microgrids with generators and demand users. So we're, we're looking at models where we are still connected to the grid, but essentially we're bypassing putting any power into that grid whatsoever. So that's the way um, we've, and that's a business um, model decision that's come by force. Um, we, we wanted to use the transmission and distribution line, it's there. The argument is, well, um, the SAPN network is full, um, so we can't have a lot of renewables in it. Um, our business model is a bit different to, to Simon's. We, we look at um, community uh, generation projects of about one megawatt to three megawatts. So we're very much embedded generation solutions. Um, so we were um, essentially forced down a path to look at this model, but we think um, that um, those same kinds of projects would be able to generate revenue for um, the community projects. So whilst you're maybe selling power to your neighbour for those kinds of community projects, eventually you'll be able to put that power back in the, the distribution network. What we mentioned at the beginning, going off the grid or going half on, half off, where do you sit? So very much stay connected to the grid because, um, as Simon has suggested, the um, uh, energy storage technologies are developing. Um, so uh, the 
um, the amount of renewable energy required to be stored to support yourself to, to be totally off the grid to get to that 99, 100% is just economically unsustainable. So why wouldn't you do as much as you can now, be an early adopter, um, innovative thinking, innovative doing, and, uh, and, and purchase an energy storage system to be able to achieve some um, agree of autonomy and um, lower your operating costs. And then when the uh, climate changes, uh, then, then you can be uh, selling power back to the, uh, the utilities. Give us an idea of some of the projects you're working on. What's happening? Uh, well, we have the floating solar project in Jamestown. Um, that's a four megawatt project in total. Um, to date, we've put in the renewable energy to power um, a wastewater treatment plant on a council. So this is treated wastewater. So we actually power the um, wastewater treatment process. We're actually in a phase now where we're installing um, uh, technologies that actually treat the water in, uh, with the electrical energy, like electrolytic chlorination. Um, and so that's an, uh, an added improvement for the council, which is a regional council, has high cost of power and has uh, water quality issues. The, um, the excess energy from that project in the next um, uh, few megawatts will be taken into the town. It will be a microgrid, and that microgrid will be installed by the council um, in the footpath and taken to the community. So the energy storage system will sit on the wastewater treatment plant. Um, the council will also be able to power their streetlights from that. So they're quite pleased to be able to be a green and sustainable community, and that's Jamestown in South Australia. So that's a, re a really big first. Um, in terms of the benefits of, of um, not just the renewable energy, they've seen a real uplift in, in, I would say, the businesses in the street, where we went to them about two or three years ago at the start of this project saying, you know, would you like to be a leader in floating solar green energy? We got lots of blank stares and, you know, what's that? And is it risky and what is it? But um, pretty much the... Uh, the, the uh, I would say the climate in the community is very positive now. There's been three or four new businesses opened up in the main street. Um, we have lots of international visitors visiting the plant because it's new technology. We'll have the same again when we put in our energy storage system and we're developing one which is similar but not the same to, to Redflow. Um, and and uh, so there's a lot of um, tourism to that town. There's a lot of positive um, energy. And from about two or three years ago, when we asked, can you please buy the power from this, uh, from this community project, we were sort of blank stares of, well, we don't know if we're going to have a business in eight to ten years, so how can we buy the power? Now it's new businesses opening up. Um, very positive, um, new residents, new, so, so that means a bigger tax base for the community, and they've really, um, this is a regional economic development solution. Thank you. No, no, Dan has a mic. How are you getting on in Port Augusta? Yeah, um, quite well, actually. So it's, um, I'll give a bit of background for the campaign, but things have really started to move. Um, yeah, thanks heaps for having me. Hey, everyone. I um, want to acknowledge that we're on Ghana country and um, pay respects to elders past, present, future, and acknowledge their sovereignty was never ceded in any other Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who are in the room today. Um, so the grid, it can be a pretty um, technical discussion, which is really, really important, but I also think it's a important values discussion. Um, Millie Telford, who spoke yesterday, talked about how climate change highlights how and how we don't value people and how we value different people. And I think the way that um, 
we talk about this transition as we hopefully supercharge charge Australia with 100% renewable power, um, the way we manage that can really um, highlight how we value people. And so, you know, when we're talking about how we change this grid, how can Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities benefit from benefit from that? How can we change the ownership structures of the grid and our power sources so communities are benefiting more directly? But also to go back to the Port Augusta question, and also how do we make sure we're pumping into the grid isn't cooking the planet? Um, but to go back to the Port Augusta story, um, I think it's really important that we talk about how do we manage this transition so that um, communities that have um, supplied power to us for generations um, are supported to actually transition into new industries, new jobs um, in a just way. Um, so what happened in Port Augusta um, was that midway through last year, um, workers and the community woke up to find out on the front page of the paper that the power station that they thought was going to provide stable employment for the next 15 years was going to close in three and now it's going to be closing in 10 weeks. Um, and they found that out on the front page of the paper. They didn't get told that before the news knew. Um, so that's... Could I just ask you about that? How yeah. the hell did that happen? Well, I mean, I don't know. Um, someone obviously leaked something um, and I uh, wanted to make a political story out of it rather than a human story. And I think that's um, part of the problem we're facing where we're seeing all this renewable energy um, being built, which is fantastic, and it's pushing these old power stations to need to close. Um, and if we don't actually manage and plan for that, um, then these communities are going to be left high and dry and find out on the front page of the paper so that the their job's had, gone. The workers had no idea that the closure was coming? Well, no, they didn't know. Uh, I mean, there'd been rumours that things might be starting to change, but um, for a very long time, the company had been saying that we were, they were going to operate till 2030. Um, so that's, I think we can learn a lot of lessons for Australia from how that happened. We don't want that to happen again. Like, we need a just transition and um, environment groups need to start working much more closely with unions to really try to drive that agenda. And um, the Australian Services Union has been really proactive in, in picking that up and pushing that here in South Australia, which is really awesome to see they represent people out of, the, out of that power station. Um, but the community did see this coming. Like um, For the last five years, some of you might know, um, we've been working there um, trying to campaign for a large-scale solar thermal plant um, to, be, to be built in the town to provide some new jobs and um, new on-demand clean energy. Um, and the community's been saying this for a long time, that we needed a plan, and without action, um, this is what happened. But on the positive note um, that I want to emphasise, after those five years of campaigning, um, a US company has now put their hand up, who've just opened up a massive um, solar thermal plant in Nevada. Um, they've put their hand up to say they want to um, build one here, 30 k's north of Port Augusta, supply the state government with energy, and they want the federal government to back them. So that's been the result of the campaign, and that's, um, yeah. Which is, which is really positive. Um, obviously, we would have liked to have been able to manage that transition and have that timeline overlap a lot better, but um, the thing that Port Augusta community's done really well and the, the city council and community members is they've actually um, been in the absence of action from government and industry. They've been trying to put forward a new vision um, for their future and be an arid smart city and be a hub for renewable energy, not just solar thermal, but a whole bunch of projects. So. Things can be done a lot better than what, what's been done in Port Augusta. How we manage this transition um, reflects how we, how we value people. Um, and yeah, if you guys want to get behind us, we're going to be going to Canberra next Wednesday to meet with a bunch of ministers. Um, so feel free to write to Greg Hunt and tell him to back this project because the federal government's been silent on this issue and they need to start doing something. So that's kind of where we're at. Thank you, Dan.
You mentioned environmentalists, in other words, the public working with unions. And what about the third leg in the stool? What about the utilities? What about the people who are... Is it not possible to work in a three-way three uh, yeah, cooperation and, like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, that's... So there's the utilities, there's renewable energy companies who want to build this stuff. Um, partnering with communities is, is in everyone's interest because we'll get a better outcome from the community. And the, and the thing that has really been the spark in this campaign has been this company saying, um, you know, lots of people have shown, shown an interest in building, but they've never actually taken that next step to secure the land and actually really seriously put their hand up and say they want to do it. So that's really important. We've got companies like AGL who are saying they, know, they now know that their coal stations are going to close. I think they need to bring that date a lot sooner um, than what they're talking about. But... Um, you know, those utilities who have been really using their, I guess, their entrenched power in our political system to try to hold back change, um, they have a role and a responsibility to start working with the community to make that make that transition. Because, um, you know, I think some, some companies do care about, like, they, they're not just people who live in boardrooms away from where these power stations are. Some of their managing people, you know, work at these power stations as well. They're their people, so they should look after them. And so they should actually be working with us to try to make that transition. It's really Let's important. talk about now the main blockages you need to get rid of. Mention some of those. Simon, you first. Sure. The, the, the trick with this is, is, as you've alluded to already, is that there are multiple blockages and they interact with each other. And, and so I think part of the way to get around the blockages rather than just to enumerate them is to, is to be a part of the solution, um, rather, you know, in, in addition to acknowledging that there's a problem. The grid piece of this is interesting. There's a tendency for us to talk about grid operators, to touch on your previous question, as if they're an individual human being, right? There's a tendency with large organisations in general to complain about the organisation like it's you, like it's a person. These are not individuals. They're enormous politically driven amalgams of opinions. And them. Them, right. But the point, to use SAPN as an example, I say power networks here. Uh, a couple of, you know, a quick example of that. If you, the, the official stance of the grid operators today is, seems to be quite against adding batteries, adding renewable systems to the grid, and certainly against officially trading on them, and they will fall back to the rules. They say, well, the rules don't allow it. Well, you guys operate amongst the rules, then you, know, you, you lobby to change them if you don't like them, right? Um, but in the meantime, uh, six months ago, I had a solar feed-in tariff that, SA, that, that the enforcement part of SA Power Networks took away from me because I wrote blog posts about how I was going to add batteries. <laughs> um, it turned out I had added batteries in a totally compliant manner, and it took me six months for them to agree with me reluctantly. I'd done nothing wrong, and I could have my tariff back with back payments. Thank you very much, guys. But... But, and, but the point is that, here's the point, you would think from that that SA Power Networks are bad and evil and don't like any of this stuff, and that's not true. There's an advanced technology part of SAPN that I have since found, and those guys absolutely get it. And they want people to put, put batteries in the grid, and they are expecting in five years' time to want to do a deal, probably a you know, community-wide deal through people that orchestrate the connection with those batteries, to buy the power back en masse exactly when the grid most needs it. So the trick isn't, you know, my view isn't so much to get hung up on the barriers, it's to figure out what part you can individually do to knock one of the barriers out. Uh, and as we've heard already, today it's hard to build a network project that sends power back to the grid, so don't. Build one that is technically capable of that, of sending it back. Get ready for that. Self-consume it now and make damn sure people understand that as soon as the grid would like to buy the power, it's right there. And I think that day will happen by setting up the catalysts for it to happen. Felicity. It does help the utilities to be able to have that type of embedded generation there. 
um, pushing the electrons around far distances doesn't, doesn't help their, their operation model at all. Um, when we were doing the Jamestown um, project, we did have an approach from SAPN who wanted us to, to sell us the poles and wires in that area uh, to be able to... Uh, they have brownouts out there, so they were looking at a way to alleviate their maintenance problem going forward. And, and they were looking at to work with us in a partnership. Um, they rec retracted that, and that was, I think, the, the same uh, technology and innovation section of SAPN that, that Simon re referred to. So um, I would say persist. Um, look at innovative models that you can do now, but that are adaptable and future-proof for change. But firstly, what if, in, as in New South Wales, the gold-plated poles and wires are sold to some even overseas enterprise so that you don't have a control. Do you see that as a problem? Can't see how that can be a problem. It, it, it could have the reverse effect whereby if, if that, that control is relinquished, um, the, the, the maintenance um, can fall behind or um, in terms of the... Um, I mean, it could speed up things because uh, the the cost of maintenance in 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 such a spread spread out areas all of Australia, or New South Wales, then I think that could assist, could help. Yeah, to maybe disagree slightly. I mean, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I, I do think one of the risks of privatisation of electricity grids is that we lose the sense of, of electricity in the grid being a public good. And um, that actually may, like in the short term, I think the innovation, it does like, you know, if the government's not doing it, maybe there, there are opportunities there. But in the long term, I think as well as that, we want to be, you know, rethinking how we generate power, how we use that grid to actually make it work better for the community. And I think governments have a big role to play there, but they're going to need to be pushed to do it because we've had this privatisation agenda that's been running for the last couple of decades, which has been... Um, you know, people in Port Augusta still blame it. Like, can't they do that with Can't they do that with policy though, as opposed to ownership? So, if you've got a private sector company that can run it more efficiently, and then they will look to have savings on maintenance and embedded generation solutions, then it's a policy driven. Yeah, I can only agree. It, it, it is policy driven, but what we tend to see in this sort of policy in these large embedded environments clearly is something. Sometimes you need a generational change to happen. You know, uh, and our children. You know, my children grew up. With, with an internet that was always there, and so their idea of the world is different to mine, when they are in positions of power, the idea of having the grid as a trading econo economy will be obvious, and you know, it'll happen by then. I think we just need to position for it and, and, and watch the kind of the skittles fall over time in terms of that change in attitude. The change in attitude exists in the community. You know, you correctly kind of frame, you know, we, we are it, right? Uh, but the trick is that old habits die hard, and old habits are, in fact, laws are the codification of old habits, right? So the new habits have to be driven up through a new generation of lawmakers, which means a new generation of people in the political sector. As that thing refreshes, the rules will catch up finally with what seemed to most of us in this audience to be self-evident. So our trick is to make sure we're ready for that change as, as, long as, as, as well as continuing to drive for it to happen. Yeah, and the rules definitely do matter. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you what it actually says, but there is this one mythical rule that apparently governs the national electricity market and it's meant to be about, you know, secure supply and potentially uh, affordable energy and it's not doing that very well. Um, there's nothing in there about innovation. There's nothing in there about cleaning up the power system. So actually changing that rule would be a really, really simple thing for governments to do that would make this stuff a lot easier and actually give the networks a mandate to start doing stuff because they're not... Good. But are we really ready for this? Because as, I, as we speak, 
Tasmania is cut off because the supply from Victoria ain't working. Did you know that Tasmania is powered by Victoria? It's quite interesting. Are we, in other words, not ready in Australia to get this kind of revolution you're talking about? Well, Robert, I think that's just underscores the incentive for putting more and more renewable generation right where the consumers of it are. You know, if Tasmania, of all places, with enormous amounts of hydroelectricity as, you know, as a capacity, as a source of, of, of renewable, you know, the sun still shines there too. You know, the answer to that is to use it as a signature example of whacking even more renewables into the grid so those interconnectors are nothing but trading devices rather than being things that use one state to hold another one up entirely. Before we have questions, let's let, look, look to the future. Imagine some of the dreams that you're talking about come true and it's smooth. In something like 20 years' time, how can you picture the way we can live as this change really makes the world difference to how, how we actually go, go about things? Well, Robin, I think to, to lead off, I think electricity in particular is a particular form of energy is, is incredibly accessible to us as human beings, more so than other sorts of energy. If you take a fossil fueled energy source that you deliver to a house, you know, whether it's gas or otherwise, um, those things are harder for individual humans to use other than just by buying the thing. But electricity is more malleable for us. We can plug in batteries to our solar panels. We can make power on our roof. I can't make gas on my roof. I might make hot air, but I can't make gas. And if you make electricity, you can use it to replace the use of other energy sources with the greater use of that electricity. So the 20-year view sees some obvious things to me, right? Obviously, the transport network is far more electrically driven than now, probably majority electric in 20 years' time. The minority is left for things that don't quite fit that model. So here's the thing. As you add batteries to your solar panels, as you become more energy self-sufficient internally, your energy consumption from the grid goes down initially, your energy consumption in general goes down, you whack LEDs in, everything gets more energy efficient. Then your total use of electricity, I think, goes up as you move other energy sources to using electricity, in particular, again, cars, but also heating. There's an island called the island of Orkney, north of Scotland. It makes more energy, more electricity over, over the course of a year than it consumes. So it has an interconnector, it sells it, it buys it back. People in Orkney used to buy heating oil for heating fuel to heat their houses. Their electricity bills went down and then they went up again because now they use electricity to heat their houses because it's so much cheaper than the oil is. So things move around. Electricity becomes the new way for us to move energy between ourselves and over the 20 year time frame becomes an enormous enabler for human beings to trade energy with each other in a way that you can't trade other sorts of fossil fuel based energy. And if you want to see what the future is like, ask Simon for a lift in his car, which is parked around the corner there. A wonderful Tesla car, which almost drives itself. It did, following the lines, and seems to have my sort of IQ, no higher than that. <laughs> and it is quite remarkable. I know it costs a few quid, but it's a beautiful example of the way the future is already here. Felicity, how do you see the future in your wildest dreams? Well, we're already working on a project um, which we think is future changing. Um, we're looking at um, a housing development which is uh, multiple houses on site. Uh, minimum, I think, to make it work is about 10. So we're looking at models of, of housing um, between 10 and, and 20 dwellings per site and doing community sharing for energy and water recycling. And so that means that one household doesn't have to be totally um, investing in the renewable and water recycling infrastructure alone. Um, the controls, um, the regulation um, at, at, at present time uh, makes that unaffordable, but we're doing something about 
making a bit of the future come to reality now by doing that kind of a development. Um, we, we also think that energy efficiency um, will increase and uh, there'll be a lot less energy consumptions in households and energy sharing where you're actually generating renewable energy on site can be a very um, efficient model so you'll actually need smaller energy storage systems. Sorry, Simon. <laughs> so uh, we think that's a snapshot of the future. Affordable? Of affordable, uh, same price as market price. Same, same price as market price. Yeah, um, so 2030. I think we can be powered by 100% renewable by then. If we get it right, we can journey down that transition, um, you know, making our our cities, our towns, our communities much, not just smarter, but also fairer and a hell of a lot cleaner and just a lot better. Um, I think we can all get on board with that. We can also stuff it up and you might see what happened in Port Augusta happen around the country. So it's, it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen, but by communities coming together and actually trying to drive this change, which I think is what's needed, we can get a cleaner, better, fairer Australia um, that's a lot better um, for all of us. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity um, to be working towards. Now we'll go in for some questions. Before I do, I'm going to uh, get up and talk to Jane Lomax Smith about, first of all, whether our local government is equipped to take on this kind of revolution and what we might do to persuade the local government people or any government to take it more seriously. Well, I think clearly Jamestown's got a local government that gets it. And I think that's because the community is often ahead of people who can make decisions. And this state government has made great progress in terms of how much renewable energy we've had. And arguably, that progress has pushed the old coal generation into a less economic form. So I think we're up for it. Um, I suspect that the majority of people here have got solar on their roof. Is that true? Yeah. So we're ahead of the curve already, um, but what we need is the grid issue to be dealt with. And particularly for regional Australia, I think the opportunities are enormous because putting those electrons down those long wires is inefficient and they get that and they can have opportunities to create power locally and do creative and imaginative things. So I just think it's wonderful being here and hearing the stories. And your advice to the public? I think it's time to get a battery. Jane Lomax-Smith, former Lord Mayor of Adelaide and a Minister of Education here. So, questions? Mike's going round. We'll just take whatever time. No soliloquies, please, but um, where should we go first? I've just got a question regarding existing units and single dwellers in units about what's being done to look at um, making solar power and stuff more accessible for them and easier for them to like instead of having five or ten solar panels for each individual unit to share that energy well this again it testing testing this again is is exactly what we've been alluding to that that's the piece that needs a change in the regulation and the and the attitude about how the grids work if you were if, if the grid operator was legally able to charge a cent or two per kilowatt hour in order to have you buy energy from your neighbour that's got a bigger roof from his surplus solar energy, we'd solve that problem. And that's exactly what we're alluding to in terms of, in terms of microgrids. And the point, the point to, to elucidate on it is, elaborate on it is, 
There's no such thing as an average household energy consumption. There's no such thing as an average household roof. But there is such a thing as those averages being valid in aggregate. So once you get to 10 houses, 20 houses, 100 houses, over that sort of scale, there is enough aggregate roof space to serve the aggregate needs of that little population. So it is a change in attitude about grid that, that lets you get your particular problem solved. Meanwhile, the people that have got enough roof space should put the solar on. The people that have got enough space for batteries should shove the batteries in. And I think trust that the grid will allow us to join the dots over the next five years. Simon, I've got a small house in Sydney called Termite Towers. And <laughs> how much would a battery cost for that? There's no such thing as an average house again, right? So what we are seeing is that the entry levels for decent energy storage systems for homes at the moment are between about, about $12,000 and $20,000, depending on what it is you're putting in and whether you're adding some more solar at the same time. It's that sort of realm today. If that's, you know, if, if that's an amount of money you can spend to make a statement and help the community learn what this means, please do. If it's not, please look to your friends who can and understand that those costs will go down over time, and that's the whole point, just like solar panels. Do you want to go? Um, just on the um, low-income housing and aff affordability and access thing, I know the state government are running a trial here um, to get a bunch of solar on um, public housing um, in South Australia, which is really positive. And I think um, you know improving solar access is something that state governments really can do. Like a, the, the policy in this place, like translates between local government, federal, and state. Um, so actually, writing to um, South Australian government people about encouraging them to get better policies to enable solar for renters and uh, low-income homes, I think is a really great thing to do. I'd, I'd like just to add one thing to that. So in the community solar model with the floating solar, if you were to go to your council and say, you know, we would like to buy renewable energy, the council can buy on your behalf and uh, can add it to you know, your rates. That's a simple model which has been done in South Australia in some, with some councils. Jamestown is not offering it yet, but we did pose that solution to them to be able to um, you know, help con you know, constituents as an alternative economic model. So that, that could be something that you could do straight away and go to your council and ask, is this the kind of program that they would support? Lovely, thank you for the talk. Um, Dr Kamani, as a, an emergency physician, I know nearly nothing about electricity, but I did have a wonderful observation that I was making as you were talking, and I thought it might be of use. Distributed systems plus minus grid start to look like um, large organisms. Um, your brain, for instance, uses much, much more glucose than it can use, whereas your liver produces much more, stores it up. And we have a bloodstream which is used by the body politic to move this stuff around for the benefit of the entire organism. What we're talking about, I think, is a distributed architecture where each cell has some capacity to look after itself, but the entire thing is integrated to the point where there's a distribution system. That sounds biological. This is a system that's, that's evolved over billions of years. So it's quite gratifying to see that, that we're going in the same way. Obviously, this requires a, lot, a great deal of distributed regulation. So each cell needs to be responsive to, the, to its local environment and possibly the distant environment as well. And it seems to me the main challenges at the moment are trying to resolve the regulation challenges and use that grid, that blood supply, for the benefit um, as you were saying, Dan, for the, for the entire community, for you know, regionally, nationally, transnationally, and hopefully one day globally. Thoughts? 
Thank you. An intelligent city. Simon. It is very much like that and, and the, the nervous system that connects it together in the modern world in this context is one way or another is going to be that internet thing. You know, that's the logical means on which this works. And one of the advantages that humans have is learning, is, is moving technology forward by standing on the shoulders of previous technology evolutions. So the internet as an evolved technology has a lot to, to teach us about how the future grid can work. And, and I, my, my former business is in the internet space and I keep seeing the parallels. The way I see the future energy grid working is very much like the current, the way the internet works today. And, and a lot of that drawing means we can get there much faster than if we started from scratch. Yep. Hands up. Hello, here. Jeff, please. Um, a few years ago, I interviewed a number of CEOs from utility companies, and mainly they were typically electrical engineers. They all hated solar because it messed with their grids and voltage, stable voltages. So they didn't like the idea of clouds coming over in the middle of the day and messing with that. But to a man, and they were all men, they uh, were very excited about the prospect of electric vehicles. And more from the point of view of um, battery storage, that you know, in their current grids they don't have any storage capacity and they saw um, electric vehicles connected to houses in the night time. A, they could sell you low demand energy in the middle of the night, which doesn't exist, and if there's any peak, peak demand or, or, or changes going on, suddenly there's, this, this, there's a huge um, array of electric vehicle batteries plugged into their grid. So they were very excited about that. But I haven't heard much more about that in the recent discussions. So what's moved apart from Tesla? Well, yeah, the thing is that that, that was actually kind of half a vision. Uh, it's not the right vision. If you think about the idea of batteries getting affordable enough to put them in a car, don't stop there. Think about a world where they're affordable enough to go into a car and at the same time to be permanently installed in your home as well. Because the silly thing about using the energy from your car to power the grid over, power the grid in, in a period of needs it is, then you get in the car tomorrow morning, you can't drive to work because it's empty. Right? The, the, so we're in a future where the batteries get so cheap you don't have to choose, you put them in both places. The other point briefly is, you're right, solar on its own winds up being the enemy of a grid past a certain point because it punches so much in when the sun's shining, disappears instantly when the clouds come over. But solar plus batteries turns into a genuine 24-hour renewable power station at the side of your home. And that's the bit that actually, that's the shift that, that was not anticipated when the panels were first popular. At that point, batteries were so expensive you wouldn't think about it this way. Now you can. It's the combination that is so powerful. Simon, how often have you been stranded in your car because there's not enough juice in it? Precisely never. Um, and just briefly to explain why, because it's important. People get obsessed with range in electric cars. It's not a problem. Um, and the reason it's not a problem is people like Tesla are proving you can put enough range in the car to not have to keep searching for the nearest you know, power pump every time you drive to the shops. But the important point about driving an electric car, you drive a petrol car until the light goes on on the dash and says, oh dear, I'm low, I'm feeling anxious, I have range anxiety in my petrol car, I must solve it by immediately finding a shell station, right? In an electric car, the very simple change in your life is you treat it like your smartphone. Every time you go home, you plug it in and while you sleep, it charges up. How long does it take to charge? I don't know, I'm asleep at the time. Same answer as for your mobile phone. How long does it take to charge your mobile phone? You don't know you're asleep at the time. 
Soon as you do that, my car has a 450 to 500 kilometre daily range, not range to empty, a daily range. Life is easy. I've never been stranded. With one exception, I got deliberately stranded once because I drove, I broke, broke a distance record in the first test I brought into the country, drove a, drove a 380 kilometre range car 500 kilometres to prove a point, but that was just to prove a point. Felicity, do you want to say that? Yeah, I, th I think you need to think about um, not just solar, but renewable plus energy storage as energy storage is energy on demand to be able to be pumped back into the grid for the utilities to solve their capacity problem. So I think um, in time, and it's not there yet, I think, um, I, th you know, I, think, I think it'll get there. I think the utilities will be um, wanting to buy the power at the, at the time that they need it without having to invest themselves in this, this infrastructure. Hello. Oh. Look, in the early days of solar, government had a huge role to play. I'm wondering whether you see government having a huge role in terms of battery storage. Well, uh, the, the thing about battery storage is two things governments can do with any new innovation, right? One is stop making it worse, and then the second is to start making it better. And, and you know, we unfortunately in this country, as you're all well aware, have spent the last few years with government, especially more at the federal level than the state, not merely being inactive, but actively trying to make it worse for some unbeknownst reason. Um, and at least it seems to be getting less worse now. We are the, the first world country in the world with the least incentives, in fact, none for electric cars, and the least incentives for things like battery storage. The Adelaide City Council, to their credit, are one of the few places doing it. They've got a scheme within the Adelaide City Council region where they will provide an up to $5,000 incentive to put battery storage into a, into a premises within the CBD. Um, that's a great thing. It's a great start, right? And it gets things moving here. So the two things government can do of all persuasions is figure out which bits of regulation are making this hard and fix them. In the case of the grid, you know, modify the rules so that it's legal to trade. Direct incentives to own batteries also, I think, are actually a good idea as a bootstrap, just as feed-in tariffs were a good idea as a bootstrap for solar. In California, there are mandates, there are quotas over the next few decades that, that subsidies drive to get energy storage into the grid and to get cars on the road that are electric. Those things are, are to date absent here. They would be very easy things to add, and I look forward to them starting to be added. But Simon, why are we so poor? Why aren't we as good as California? What's stopping it? I can see nothing but a lack of vision there, nothing. Uh, we have more sunshine, you know, we have plenty of sunshine. There's nothing but a lack of vision involved. It is that simple. This is, yeah, it's very much a, this is the way we've always done it. And, and is it going to make my job any harder? I, yeah, that's pretty much what we come across every day, even if it's a good idea. There's no reasons why the government can't give the same mandates that California or the US mandate. There's no reason. We've been talking about the, the grid and the operators as though it's some sort of monolithic group. Whereas in South Australia, as I understand it, we have power generating companies, we have power distribution companies, and we have power retailing companies. Do you see that structure, that distributed structure, as an obstacle or an opportunity towards the, the sort of migration we're talking about? Or I'll have a crack. I think neither, providing again that the government sector can avoid making it worse and perhaps even surprise us by starting to make it better. I don't think the distribution of those layers is a bad thing. In fact, I think it produces an opportunity for innovation at each layer without being held up by a lack of innovation in the other layers at the same time. 
Um, and because the, the nice thing about generation assets is you can build renewable ones. You can you can build a renewable power generation system in Port Augusta, plug it into the existing energy grid and have it treated as just another one of those things. In parallel, though, you can have the thing that is busting the brains of regulators, the idea that every one of us can be a power station in our own backyard. And the regulations are not well set to deal with that and they will need to become so. Simon, how different is South Australia from the other states in this regard? Well, in, in some, it, it, every state's a bit different, to, especially in terms of whether it's primary, the primary chunks of that, of that picture have been privatised or not, because it does modify the situation. Why, and why privatisation modifies it is that you then have a commercial interest that you have to, to some extent, respect in the, in the sale process. You can wind up with conditions that kick in during the sale. You know, the basis on which somebody invested would then need to be held stable long enough for them to get their investment back. And that's actually a possible negative to privatising some of this stuff. If it was privatised under a rule that said you must be able to keep exploiting it in this certain way, and yet that certain way might be yesterday's way, that could be a bit of a barrier, where ironically government might be able to be more responsive. But you get what you get. And the, the counter-argument is, again, some government vision about changing the structure here can be driven on top of those companies, kind of like it or not. And one, I guess one challenge that that structure really creates is that um, one of the big challenges for getting any kind of renewable project up or power project up at the moment is that the um, retailers just aren't signing power purchase agreements. Um, so that's been one of the big um, things that's been getting in the way of getting a solar thermal plant built in Port Augusta. And the reason that we've now got that opportunity is because the state government's actually said, hey, as part of our climate change strategy, we want to buy low carbon power so that's like a big a big user to, t to sell to so that's where like government setting goalposts and and strong targets that actually enforce the retailers to um, sell the power is uh, to buy the power is really important but also one of the reasons that um, they haven't been buying the power is because we've got too many old coal stations still in the market and there's currently no way um, to actually take them out beyond that kind of haphazard slam the brakes on company decides it's not profitable anymore going to close it way so actually a plan to close and transition um, coal-fired power stations will enable more renewables to get built which would be a very positive thing we're about to spend tens of billions of dollars building new diesel electric submarines. Now, I'm not suggesting solar submarines, but <laughs> the existing ones run on um, lead-acid batteries. Imagine if, here's an idea for Mr Turnbull maybe, imagine if we took some of those billions of dollars and did what uh, Tesla did and invested in trying to make the best modern batteries that money can buy. Do you think that there would be scope for an idea like that? It's, it's a difficult realm. I mean, submarines are a fascinating one and obviously a very, very politically sensitive thing in this state in particular, but not so much because of the fact they're submarines, but because the submarines are a technology source and a technology-based employer. Uh, the thing is, of course, the batteries don't power the submarines. Diesel generators do. The batteries are just time-shifting that energy. There are, I think, I, to agree with you, there are better batteries than lead-acid batteries coming out. You know, I might happen to know one or two um, that you might, in fact, want to put in a submarine because they might be better at it. But it's a difficult realm. Those things are time-shifting energy that typically comes off, off, off diesel. Of course, the politically incorrect answer is you can whack nuclear generation into a submarine, and our American friends tend to do it that way. Um, yeah, it's a hard realm. Uh, let me answer a slightly different question. In a state whose livelihood has been about manufacturing old stuff like conventional internal combustion engine cars, and we're about to lose that, that source of, of income or that source of employment, 
the trick, as always, is for us to realise just how smart we are here and find other ways to use that intelligence to build things better than other people, to build things smarter than other people. You know, it sounds like a platitude, but it's actually kind of the point. You want to take all that expertise and use it for something. The battery company I'm a part of was started in Brisbane, but we're now employing South Australians to build technology layers around the battery to make it easy to use. And my point there is South Australia is full of very smart people that know how to do good tech on top of good physics and chemistry. And I think you know, employing them to do new things is something we should try damn hard to do. And and uh, just to throw a practical example, um, Precision Car Components who supply Holdens, they've um, now transitioned or are transitioning to make um, mirrors for solar thermal projects and other renewable projects and manufacture them here in Adelaide and they're signing global export deals because they can't get support to build them here, which is crazy, but it's, it's, it's like if we actually plan for it, we can, we can do it, which is really exciting. I'd just like to add that um, with our floating solar technology, we're in a pre-construction phase where we're actually exporting the technology to California. We're doing a project on a reservoir, a drinking water reservoir, which is a man-made basin. Um, but that's, locally, that's local smarts, local engineering, local technology manufactured here in Australia, exported to the US. Hi, this is probably the most layperson question. Um, but with renewable energy and storage becoming more and more viable, why are we still looking to, uh, towards um, unclean energy like nuclear? Is it because we don't like renewable or because we don't understand it? I actually don't think it's that nearly... I don't think the conversation in, in, in politics is nearly that well evolved. I think it's just habit. People, people are used to what they're used to and they're used to burning the old stuff. Um, and I think the journey from burning the old stuff to the new stuff, as I alluded to earlier, is actually generational. It needs a new generation of decision makers to bubble up into that hierarchy to say, no, that isn't the only way we can do it anymore. Um, I really think that's what, that's what happens there. And again, meantime, people like us, what, what should we do about it? We should try to be examples for the community around us. Some of that community will be the politicians who in future will fix some of the problem. Yeah, make some noise because it's very much... Uh, no one wants to be the first, no one wants to make waves. Uh, will it be controversial? How will it be seen? I don't want to lose my job. Does it make my job harder? It's very much, this is the way we've always done it. Uh, I just think it's, 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 they're not the reasons not to, not to take the step forward. Last question. Several panel members referred to microgrids and local networks, and I understood from what uh, they said that these would need to be fitted, they'd need to be fresh wires. But I had conceived of this a bit like a computer network and it could be virtual. Could you clarify? Well, yeah, that's precisely the point. Um, the only barrier to what you've described, to doing it virtually, in other words, doing it across the existing energy grid, is for the, the regulations to be changed to not make that illegal. Because at the moment, if you do that, you're an illegal power company, right, literally. And so the way the microgrids are happening now is happening what's called behind the meter. They're happening on community property where it's one, you know, let's, let's say it's, you know, it's one large property on which lots of homes have been built, lots of apartments, whatever. So there's one electricity meter to the macrogrid and behind that it is new wires connecting them together. But you're dead right. The point is that exemplar is incredibly important because there's no technology difference between that and doing it between you and me regardless of where we live. That's just regulation. Final question to each of you, starting with Dan, one minute. Do you expect another coal-fired power station to be built and opened in Australia? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was one second.
there's some crazy coal miners who have talked about building um, them to power their coal mines, which is really dumb, um, but also quite uneconomic. So, I, yeah, I just don't think it's going to happen. Felicity. No? Or yes? No. Why not? It's just, it's dumb in this day and age. We, sh we, sh we shouldn't be doing it. We need to focus on renewables. Simon. Uh, no, and actually it's a cooler reason. It's too expensive. That's the beauty, right? The re and the difference is generational, yeah? Existing coal-fired power stations, a lot of them will get run to the end because the point is that they've, they've, the investments have been made to build them, but you'd never make that investment to build one again. You'd be mad. It's cheaper to put up a whole lot of solar panels and some batteries, so that's what's going to happen. I remember being a Time Lord and having lived for so, such a long time, uh, at the beginning of the 80s, 83 or something, the miners were on strike in Britain. My father was a coal miner, went down the pit when he was 14. And uh, so I sent a message to the coal miners who were protesting against Margaret Thatcher, what is your plan for coal and after coal? And they replied to me, much to my astonishment, we have no plans, we react to conditions and wages. And we can see what happened to the mining industry there. So let us hope that the people who work in the trade, as you describe, have the nous to look to the future and the wonderful possibilities we've heard about today. Would you please thank the panel?